This is a UC Public Policy Channel program from the Goldman School of Public Policy at UC Berkeley. Visit us at www.uctv.tv/public-policy for more discussion on solutions for the good of all. Good afternoon. Uh, wow, what a crowd! Uh, my name is Henry Brady. I'm dean of the Goldman School of Public Policy. It's my great pleasure to introduce to you today our featured speaker, Joseph Stiglitz, uh, university professor and winner of the Nobel Prize in Economics. Uh, he's taught at Princeton, Stanford, MIT, Oxford, and now Columbia. At Columbia, he founded and is co-president of the Initiative for Policy Dialogue and is a member and former chair of the Committee of Global Thought. Professor Stiglitz currently serves as the president of the International Economic Association, and he served as chief economist and senior vice president of the World Bank from 1997 to 2000. And before that, he was a member and chair of the Council of Economic Advisors during the Clinton administration. His work, of course, is exceptionally highly regarded both in technical economics and in just a more uh, a broad commentary on the economic scene in America. Um, he also has one distinguishing and important feature. He was born in Gary, Indiana, along with Michael Jackson. <laughs> so shares the same hometown. Also, I think Paul Samuelson was from Gary, Indiana. So Gary, Indiana, of course, by the way, is an example of what part of what's happened to America, the loss of manufacturing jobs as U.S. Steel has lost uh, its jobs, and I think closed almost all the plants, if not all of them, in Gary, Indiana. Professor Stiglitz has written a series of books uh, that have had enormous impacts on global debates, especially more recently on inequality. His latest book is The Great Divide, Unequal Societies, and What to Do About Them. It was just published this month and is being sold here today, uh, courtesy of Mrs. Dalloway's bookstore. Professor Stiglitz will be signing books after the talk so let's welcome Professor Joseph Stiglitz. And here discussing the Great Divide with Professor Stiglitz is our very own UC Berkeley, Robert Reich, Chancellor's Professor of Public Policy. Professor Reich, yeah, look at. <laughs> He served as Secretary of Labor in the Clinton administration. He's written numerous books, including The Work of Nations and Supercapitalism. He also released a film in 2013, Inequality for All, which is available on Netflix, iTunes, and DVD. <laughs> His latest book is Beyond Outrage, What Has Gone Wrong with Our Economy and Our Democracy and How to Fix Them. Let's welcome, you've already done this, but let's do it again. Let's welcome Robert Wright. Thank you, uh, Henry. Uh, let me thank uh, Henry Brady, Dean of the Goldman School of Public Policy. Uh, the Goldman School of Public Policy that is my home, Annette Dornbus, who uh, helped arrange this. Uh, and Joe, let me thank you. You're on a book tour. Uh, a book tour is a grinding, awful thing for anybody, I know. Um, but uh, something that uh, Henry did not mention, you just told me you last week you were trending. <laughs> 
Now, I don't know what trending means, but I think, I think Joe Stiglitz deserves to be always trending. And, uh, but Joe, uh, thank you again. Uh, we're, we're here to talk about your book, but we're here also to talk about the larger question of inequality, particularly in the United States. And let's, uh, one question for you uh, is, why do you think that the United States is such an outlier? That is, inequality is growing uh, in every advanced country, but why is it particularly extreme in the United States? You might say it's part of American exceptionalism. Exceptional. <laughs> I wish, I wish uh-huh. exceptionalism were actually in a, in a positive way rather than a negative exactly. way. Uh, but I think, uh, you know, the fact that we have more inequality than any of the other advanced countries, uh, I think, says something. Because the underlying economic forces, you know, globalization, technology, whatever you think of, demographic even, they're playing out similarly in all the other advanced countries. So if it's not these underlying drivers that has led America to, uh, to be at this extreme, what is it? In my view, is it's very much uh, our policies. It's appropriate to be talking about in a policy school. But it's, it's our policies, which are then are related to our politics. Uh, so you have said, uh, just jumping off from that, that, that inequality in the United States is really has been a matter of choice. We have chosen inequality. And just to... Not the poor people. Let me make it clear. Not everybody has chosen inequality. <laughs> not everybody chosen, well, that's, but, but who, who is it has who is it who has made the choice of inequality? Well, it's, it's part of our political process. And let me try to just articulate one more aspect of when I say uh, it, it, it's our policies. Um, you know, markets don't exist in a vacuum, and they structure our economic relations, whether you have monopoly power that drives up pop prices and therefore drives down real wages, or you don't have unions, you have weak unions, that drives down, you know, bargaining power of workers, whether you have globalization structured where it's easier for jobs to go offshore and then the goods to come back. All these affect the distribution of income, they affect the degree of inequality. So then you have to ask the question, uh, what, what is driving the political process? And both you and I know a lot of, uh, we work together in, in the Clinton administration a lot. Uh, and it, it has to do with the role of money in politics. So um, going back to the Clinton administration, uh, did you see any money in politics in the Clinton administration? <laughs> uh, Yes, there were some uh, uh, very sensitive moments maybe I, I, I can share. Uh, one of the things that... Oh, not that one. <laughs> uh, one of the really most tense moments during the Clinton administration, I don't know if you remember this, is that uh, we had begun... The, uh, there were budgetary problems at the beginning of the administration, like there are always, and... Uh, we began to uh, think about how, how we could put our country in a better budgetary stand and yet make the economy stronger. And one idea that Bob and I and a few other people came up with is there were a lot of what are called tax expenditures that are spending for things hidden in the tax code, uh, spending things like for subsidizing corporate checks, subsidizing fo- fossil fuels, and uh, I don't know if it was your word or anyway, it became fashionable to call corporate it welfare. corporate welfare. Uh, 
And um, Bob Rubin uh, went ballistic uh, when... I'm appalled. <laughs> when we started calling these things corporate welfare. Actually, I don't know if you remember this, but I gave a speech in which I called these things corporate welfare. If we're moving from welfare to work which was one of the major themes of the Clinton administration, why don't we get corporations off their welfare and finance a better welfare-to-work system? And I was called into the chief of staff's office with various other members of the White House, and I was told if I ever use that term again, I might not have my job. Yeah, I remember that. Do you? <laughs> That's why I don't know if I should have brought it up. Yeah. But it was, it was an emotional, I mean, it was a very emotional. You saw the, the forces at play. But let me just oh, but, but let me make sure that everybody knows. I use that term repeatedly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and I continue to support you, and I, I, continue to, I still continue to use that term, corporate yeah. welfare, because I think it really captures uh, a lot of what was going on. And, and uh, one of the things that, that was on the list of corporate welfare, even from the conservatives, like from the Cato Institute, was the bailouts of the banks. I don't know if you remember that. And we had no inkling of what would be the magnitude of those bailouts 16 years later. Right. That, that that was when they were small and limited before they got to the trillion dollar size. Well, there had already been the SNL, the savings and loan no, bailout. So, so, that's right. And so there had been that, other that, smaller bailouts. Oh, there had been a number of bailouts, but yep. it, it was, the magnitude of that right. was obviously dwarfed. But there was a, a, an example of how... how um, the rules and regulations, the political influence shape the way our economy functions. Uh, very early on in the administration, uh, I don't know if you were there, we had a discussion of um, the uh, excessive CEO pay and executive pay. And there was a strong uh, uh, concern around the country about this, and we decided to uh, impose a effectively a tax on pay in excess of a million dollars. And then one member of the economic team, uh, who I won't mention. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> uh, he had just made $25 million the year before. And he thought this was maybe not such a good idea. So he came up with a really good suggestion, good in quotes, um, that if the pay was called performance pay, it would be exempted from the tax. If it was linked to corporate performance, that is linked to it's, share prices. Yeah, and that set off or exacerbated a, the stock option. I had written before uh, a number of articles pointing out that stock options were a really bad way of incentivizing. Because what they encourage firms to do were to do distorted accounting to get their share price up, and that they were actually uh, almost unfair in the following sense. You got rewarded if the Federal Reserve lower interest rates and the stock prices go up. If you were running an airline and the price of gasoline goes down, stock price goes up, did the CEO Responsible for that? Obviously not. So what was called incentive pay had nothing to do with incentives. 
uh, of the good kind had a lot to do with the incentives of the bad kind. We saw that uh, in a, all the, the, the accounting scandals uh, that played out. And then some of us said uh, a little bit later on that, you know, if you are encouraging these stock options, which we were doing through the tax system, then at least the shareholders ought to know what's going on. You know, when you give a stock option, it's not like manna from heaven. You know, they, they would like to sell it. Is that that money that went the stock options came out of thin air and nobody was paying the price. But, you know, I, I began my career in physics before I got waylaid by concerns about inequality. And one of the things you learn in the first class in physics is the law of conservation of nature, uh, of matter. And, and so you know that if somebody's getting something, uh, it's coming out of the hide of somebody else. And we ought to have transparency. So the real point was that stock options are a dilution of the ownership claims of everybody else. And so we said, you ought to have disclosure. Well, the same person who was responsible for the clever stock option provision. Is this the same person that tried to get me fired? Yes. For corporate wealth? <laughs> that same person said, oh, no, that will confuse the market. Uh, you know, they won't understand it. Let's keep it in the footnotes. We'll have disclosure, but in footnote 743, and make sure that nobody, I mean, and, and that way it won't confuse people. Uh, Joe, uh, I want to get back can to... I, can I make one more point about this? Oh, yes, we, absolutely. Uh, so when you have these kinds of incentives for stock options, they are part of the reasons that we've gotten this divide at CEO pay and why the CEO pay relative to workers has gone from 20 to 1 to, on average, 300 to 1, and in many of our corporations, 500 to 1,000 to 1. So, I mean, that's one of the manifestations of inequality. And to link it to the main thesis, it's that the way we structure our economy structures our inequality. So we didn't have to have that law. But we chose to. Well, we also chose, uh, and not only the Clinton administration, but the George Bush, not George W., George the first Bush administration, uh, chose to change securities laws in such a way that it was possible to have stock buybacks without telling shareholders exactly when the company was buying back their shares of stock, thereby pumping up share prices just exactly when CEOs were exercising their options with regard to stocks. Now, this is something that is almost never discussed. If this is not insider trading, I don't know what is, yeah. but it goes on all There's the time. There's one thing that's even worse, and that was... This that is was, not, by the way, this is an upbeat conversation. I just, <laughs> we want to keep things happy here. So that, they didn't get enough money that way, so they started backdating their, their yeah. you know, they, there's still a little uncertainty because when you buy back shares, you can't be sure exactly where the stock price is going to go. But if you backdate your, 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 your stock options, then, of course, you can choose the dates because you know what the price is. So, so that gives you a lot more certainty and reduces the risk of, 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 of stock options. Uh, but somebody listening to our conversation right now might think that the real problem is this person who we're not naming, uh, <laughs> who is part of the administration. Uh, and yet, uh, both of us know it goes far beyond exactly. an individual That's person. why I didn't want to focus on, on one right. person. Right. And so what's the 
what's the actual force? What's the mechanism by which big money or and in our political system actually affects not only this system, this person, but also a lot of other decisions that this person represents? Well, there, there are two mechanisms that I think are particularly important. Uh, one is the direct role of money in politics. You know, the last election, each candidate spent, each of the two presidential candidates spent over a billion dollars. This next election is going to be much more expensive. And they call them campaign contributions, but a better, you know, these are not charitable contributions. Uh, For the most part, these are better described as investments. And the financial sector made a lot more off of their investments, political investments, than they did out of their financial investments. I mean, those, you know, all all the housing securities, those went belly up, but their financial investments paid off a lot. Uh, But, Joe, our experience in government was before Citizens United. So everything we saw in terms of those investments uh, are presumably dwarfed by the amount of money in politics now. But let me play devil's advocate, because some political scientists say to me, uh, but given the huge return on, in the, on those political investments, you'd expect much more money in politics. The actual amount of money in politics may seem very large, but from the standpoint of an individual company or even an individual industry, uh, it's still quite small. Well, how, do you expe- how do you explain that? Well, uh- there are other forces at play. You know, there are examples where, um, you know, uh, and those are some of the things that give me hope occasionally, uh, an upbeat uh, element in this conversation. So, for instance, uh, there, in the 2014 election, there was a very big attempt to disenfranchise uh, a lot of uh, poor people, African-Americans, um, uh, the whole campaign of, you know, if you couldn't prove, Hispanics, you know, if you couldn't prove, if you didn't have a driver's license, uh, you couldn't prove who you, you couldn't vote. And uh, that backfired because a lot of the people who were, would have been disenfranchised got so angry that they came out to vote. And uh, that, that was one of the reasons that in certain places we got a lot better outcomes are you, you're talking about the midterms just now, 2014, uh, or are you talking no, about I was, 2012? I was talking about 20, 2012. Yeah, 2012. because but the one thing 2012, cons- in 2014, yeah. turnout was really yes, low. Yes, lest we become trade. too joyful in this conversation, <laughs> let's let's remember that in 2014, That's, yeah. the actual turnout was the lowest we've seen uh, since 1942, when yeah. a lot of people couldn't turn out because they were fighting a war. Uh, yeah. So we do have something yeah, of a and, problem. And, and this actually links with one of the themes that this kind of inequality and has led to a kind of undermining our democracy because when that money gets translated into the political process, people feel disenfranchised. Why bother? Why bother? And, and, and that's maybe why we don't have that much money in the... They don't need to spend that much money to sort the whole political process. That's what I I thought you were getting at. My sense is that you're not going to spend any more money than you need, and if you can get your way 
uh, without <laughs> spending a, a lot of money. Only a billion dollars. That's right. Why spend more? Now, yeah. uh, the Koch brothers, I don't want to pick on anybody, and I don't want this to be in any personal, way perceived any personal. to be uh, a, a, a partisan uh, discussion, <laughs> but the Koch brothers have already raised uh, something in the order, their network, of about $900 billion for the 2016 election. 900 million. 900 million. Yeah, Did yeah. I say billion? 900 billion. million. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, they Thank were goodness, wishing. It's that's not right. 900 million. <laughs> uh, 900 million. That is approaching a billion. Uh, the, uh, that's uh, more than the Republican National Committee spent in 2012. And uh, are we on the way to having a third party of oligarchs? I think there's a real concern. And, and, and that echoes one other aspect, just, just to mention, of the, and you bring this out in your movie, that, that uh, uh, the degree of wealth inequality, we talked about in, income inequality being exceptional in the United States. Wealth inequality is also uh, exceptional. I mean, like there, there's this one statistic uh, that uh, two families with eight people, the Koch brothers and the, the Waltons, Walton's famous for their good power, uh, uh, labor relations, gender discrimination, and corruption in Mexico. Uh, those two families inherited uh, as much wealth as the bottom 44% of America. And that means, of course, that in the electoral process, they have a lot more voice. Uh- which makes me want to ask you an academic, more an academic question. You are an economist. You're not a political scientist. Uh, why is it that the economics field, the field of economics, has not paid more attention to inequality and to the dynamics? I mean, there used to be a field called political economy. But we don't, we're not hearing that much. A lot of economists yep. don't, have not wanted no, to I get think... into this. Now, there are notable exceptions. Emmanuel Says here has done extraordinary work. Uh, Thomas Piketty has done extraordinary work. But in terms of the political aspects of ec- economics, uh, how politics shapes the market, there's not a huge amount of work recently, is there? Uh, it, no, you're absolutely right. And now, for a long time, uh, there was a... a a general sentiment among economists that was actually summarized most forcefully by Bob Lucas, who got a Nobel Prize, who actually said it was invidious, it was wrong to talk about inequality. Um, and, you know, it was, it was the most poisonous thing you could do. Now, there was a theorem behind his statement, and it doesn't sound like a theorem when you use words like that, but there was a theorem. The theorem, uh, for those of you who uh, know economics, is called the second welfare theorem. And it basically said you could separate out efficiency from distribution. That the job of the economist was to make the size of the economic pie as big as possible. The job of the political scientist or the politics was to divide that pie. So you can separate these two things out. And economists are focused just on one thing, making the size of the pie bigger. And doing anything else was distracting uh, the, uh, the profession from its core mission. Now, it turns out that, you know, like any theorem, it depends on the assumptions. Uh, one of the key assumptions is perfect information. And some of you may know I, I spent a lot of my life worrying about the consequences of imperfect and asymmetric information. And when you have imperfect and asymmetric information, the theorem is not true. You can't separate out efficiency from equity. Now, Anybody 
who, who is immersed in the real world like Bob knows you can't separate out efficiency from equity. So it wasn't maybe for you, you know, a big insight that the theorem that Bob Lucas was using was wrong. But this has been very strong within the economics profession for a very, for a very long time. These doctrines are so embedded into the mindset of economists. Uh, it, it's one of the reasons why the economic models uh, that were being used by the central banks uh, before the crisis did so poorly. They couldn't see what was going on in terms of inequality. So most of those macroeconomic models they use use a representative agent model. Representative agent model says everybody's the same. Of course, they didn't believe everybody's the same, but what they really were saying is the differences aren't important. You could describe the economy very well as if everybody were the same. And you see that mindset still evident. Uh, there was a big fight, some of you may know, about who should be the chair of uh, the Federal Reserve. And um, one of my students uh, won that battle, uh, Janet Yellen. And she gave a speech. She's uh, also on this faculty, you know. Oh, that's right. <laughs> uh, not now. She was not, on this No, I, I understand. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and and uh, she gave a speech not that long ago uh, where she said she started talking about inequality. And uh, she was taken to task by some Republicans. Um, I think they were afraid that she was trying to, going to try to reduce inequality. They wanted to increase inequality. So there was a little <laughs> difference of view about what you should do. But the view was that the chairman of the Fed should not talk about inequality. Uh, one of the points I make in, in, in these essays uh, in The Great Divide is actually Fed policy has a lot to do with inequality. It helped, it's one of the things. I, mean, I, I talked about the rules. We talked about the tax policy. It's actually also the way the Federal Reserve conducts monetary policy has had a big effect on inequality. Well, there are two different views about that. I'd love to have your, your take. One view is that if the Fed keeps interest rates very low and that generates more uh, a tighter labor market, uh, more economic activity, a tighter labor market means uh, that people at the bottom gets higher, get higher wages. But there's a contrary view, and that is but by keeping interest rates very, very low, uh, the Fed is putting more and more money into the stock market. And the owners of the stock market are overwhelmingly wealthy, and they have been doing wonderfully well as a result of this Fed policy. What side do you come down on? Uh, well, uh, my, I'm a two-handed economist, and I'll say both. Good. Uh, so well, let me say, the right answer to our economic dilemma, you might say, is we should be using fiscal policy. Right. Uh, we're trying to do too much with monetary policy. And, uh, you know, we can borrow at minus 2% in real terms. We have investments that yield in technology, education, infrastructure, a whole host of investments uh, that yield huge returns compared to that minus 2%. And that would therefore improve the balance sheet of the country, make the country a, a stronger, not only a more equal society, but a stronger economy. But... To come back to our refrain, our politics is, 
making that difficult, not, uh, not, not possible. In fact, going the other way, we've, we've actually contracted the size of the public sector since 2008. So that means the only game in town is monetary policy. And what is absolutely right is that probably the first order effect of monetary policy, of, of a lack of stimulation, is higher unemployment. Higher unemployment hurts workers three ways. Lack of stimulation, meaning higher interest rates would create lack of unemployment. Uh, of, More and unemployment, that, and that lower wages, and, and because the economy would be weaker, Lower tax revenues, and so that would lead to more cutbacks. So as a first order, low uh, interest rates, interest are, rates good are, good. are good for equality. Now, my criticism goes a little bit beyond that and say, look, but to get the real benefits from low interest rates, from loose monetary policy, you have to make sure the credit channel is working. And they haven't done a very good job on that. Small, lending to small and medium-sized enterprises years after the crisis began, the recession began, remember in December 2007, years later, small and medium-sized lending is much lower than it was before the crisis. And in the United States, SME lending is a very big source of, of job creation. And, and, so, and when, we, when, we, when the Fed and the administration went in to save the banking system, they were interested in saving the the big speculation, speculative banks, uh, not into the local, regional, community banks that are much more involved in lending to small businesses. When we bailed out the banks, we didn't put any conditions on, you know, the, the president said, we're giving you this money. Why are we doing it? He was very explicit. It's not because we love the banks, although I think that was really the true agenda. But uh, we're giving it so that to keep the blood of the economic system, money flowing to get money into business so they would lend. Now, at the World Bank, when we lent money, we, we said if we lent money for building a, a, a dam or for doing a particular thing, we make sure the money went where we said it was going to go. And we call that conditionality. Sometimes we put too many conditions, but, but we said, this is why we're giving you the money, and you can't go take a vacation <laughs> with that money. But when we gave the money to the banks, we didn't put any conditions on. So some of the money went out to pay bonuses. For what? I couldn't figure that out. Uh, to, to, uh, well, it was for top executives. Top executives. For nothing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so we didn't say you have to lend. So the result was lending went down. So is this a political, is this another case of political influence causing economic policy to be skewed toward inequality? Very much so. Very much so. It was, we decided on trickle-down economics in the bailout. Throw money at the banks and pray that it would help the economy. And, this partic- and, and so you had two administrations involved. You had right. the uh, previous George W. Bush administration and you had the Obama administration. And even in the Obama administration... they were the same people. They were the same people. Bernanke... Uh, Geithner, you know, it, the team, there was only one person who changed on the team, so it was two out of three, so it wasn't a big, big change. Yeah. So, so what I, you, you, I wanted to come back to the second part of your question, though. So, so what we should have done, you know, first fiscal policy, if you couldn't get fiscal policy, lower interest rate, but make sure the channel, the credit channel was working, the, 
the, the banking system was competitive, the money, the benefit of the lower interest rates went out to where it was supposed to do. We didn't do that, so the Fed failed. Right. What it did do is another instance of trickle-down economics. It was another instance of make, you know, if we can get the wealthy wealthy enough, they will spend more, and that will reinvigorate the economy. But what they forgot was that when you lower the interest rate, those older people, elderly people, who had been more prudent and you know, not very well off, have put their life savings into government bonds. And the interest on government bonds went down to close to zero. So they, their consumption had to go down. So we encouraged the consumption of the very rich. We really discouraged the consumption of the, very, of, of the elderly who were poor. Investment didn't get very much stimulated. And so net-net, it was probably slightly positive for the overall economy. But net-net, it also increased inequality. Uh, but you've just given a statement of kind of economic policy that failed. You could view what you just said as an example of inadvertent uh, bad consequences. Or you could, as you said about three minutes ago, view it as exactly what policymakers thought would happen because the political forces operating on those policymakers actually anticipated exactly what happened. Uh, in other words, the, the policy discussion we very often have, you and I have, many other people have, uh, we look at policies that are made and say, oh, well, that was, you know, that was just, uh, it, it shouldn't have been that way. Uh, the public was sold a bill of goods, uh, but uh, maybe it was just a, a bad outcome. But then there's another set of lenses that we can use and say, this is really almost all about politics. People know exactly on the inside what they're doing and why they're doing it. They just don't want to share it with the public because they don't want the public to know. Well, as I said, I think it's a little bit more complicated. You know, it, That's it, pretty complicated it, as it, it is. is. No. <laughs> but, so for instance, uh, when, uh, go back to 2008, 2009, um, when the crisis uh, was uh, 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 beginning and the and the um, uh, economy was was crashing. Uh, I think there were two things that were going on. The people who were at the table and influencing the policy really believe you know were, were people from the financial market for the most part. And so the president, both presidents, were hearing the world as seen through the eyes of these particular people. And they, I don't, for the most part, they actually believed that they, they understood that they were going to be the direct beneficiaries, but they actually believed, just like Charlie Wilson did, I don't know if you remember the famous thing, what's good for General Motors is good for Andrew United Charlie States. Wilson, yep. And this is another example. The, the bankers really believed that the necessary and sufficient condition, necessary and sufficient for saving the U.S. economy was giving the bankers as much money as they asked without conditions. So they and believed in trickle-down economics. They really did believe in trickle-down economics. And I remember you know, a phone call I was on uh, with the Democrats, you know, the Lehman Brothers had just collapsed. The question was, how do we respond? 
And um, so, so Obama, uh, who you know, was a candidate at the time, was trying to, you know, we, we wanted to be cooperative, and what, what should our position be? And uh, they were, uh, as you can imagine, almost all uh, people from the financial community. And uh, there were just so, so many memorable moments in that conversation. Uh, one of them was uh, several of the bankers said, why do you want to limit it to $700 billion? Um, you know, we might need more than that. And the tone was, don't worry about that. If you need more, uh, you'll get more. We just don't want to... We don't want to upset uh, Congress. You know, seven hundred billion seems like a lot of money for to a lot of people. Um, so, um, and I said, well, you know, if you're going to use uh, this approach, and I don't think I was impolite enough to say trickle down economics, but I try to say, you know, really at the root of our problem has been this housing crisis. Again, I didn't want to insult all these bankers and say, because you engaged in predatory lending, uh, you were just getting your comings. Uh, your, Joe. Your, <laughs> but can I, can I, I, I have a I'm parenthetical. parenthetical. Why didn't you want to insult them? Oh. <laughs> uh, well, I was trying to get the conversation to where I wanted it to go, is, is the answer. So sometimes you might... might be more successful, might, uh, if, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> so, so I say, you, you, you got to deal with the homeowners. You, you got to make sure that, you know, that we're going to be facing, we are facing massive foreclosures. Really, if you want to save the economy, you, you really ought to be doing something about the foreclosure crisis. And, you know, there are lots of things uh, that you could do. I've talked about something called a homeowner's chapter 11. I won't go into the details. And almost to a person, uh, the general sentiment was, oh, no, you, you know, go away. Uh, <laughs> we don't want to talk about uh, that. We want to focus on really the important issue of saving the banks. Um, and at the end of the conversation, uh, what was interesting Obama had picked up on my remarks and made a little speech about that. But then he talked to Geithner and some other people. Nothing happened. And then as time went on, you know, I got called into the Treasury. Again, you know, try to explain about homeownership. And then you started getting arguments and you began to see a little bit more clearly how people's mindset is so shaped by the people that they talk to. So, In fact, my experience was exactly the same, Joe, that once uh, the problem is defined in a certain way, and once a president and the key people around him agree that that is the definition of the problem, the game is over. Uh, you can't really get into that game because everybody has invested a certain amount of intellectual capital and then political capital in that framework. But uh, yeah, can I just say one, one thing? Because you know th this is about inequality and fairness. Uh, it is interesting how the vocabulary of inequality and fairness enters into uh, arguments on all sides. So I remember in another meeting I had at Treasury where where I again was urging doing something about homeowners. And uh, the uh, uh, Secretary of Treasury uh, said something to the effect, um, it would be unfair to the homeowners who didn't have a mortgage or would pay back the mortgage to help out those who were uh, being foreclosed against. And then I said, well, 
Uh, but what about the help that we've given to all the bankers who brought the country uh, to the brink of ruin? <laughs> you know, what about that equity in the rest of America? And that was just outside of their frame. <laughs> you know, they, they, they could see one kind of inequity, and they, they debated it, and they had said, we can't do anything about the homeowners because of that division. Didn't bother them any of the other inequities. Well, and they would use other words, just, you know, like moral hazard. They'd say, oh, this will create moral hazard. And I say, moral hazard? We've been talking about banker moral hazard for years. And, you know, I don't think most homeowners are going to borrow money in order to lose their home. You know, that's not what we're talking about here. But the bankers have done it over and over again. And we talked about it in the East Asia crisis. We talked about it then. And we have real evidence of moral hazard. Just slid by as if uh, nothing had happened. So, Joe, just to review, we've talked about how politics, raw politics, influences policymaking. We've talked about how a lot of people who take frames of analysis that actually enrich themselves, but they actually believe in it because they have a self-interest in believing it, how that affects public policy. What about not only macro, but let me give you an example of current micro, and particularly where economics says one thing, traditional economics, but you and I and others worried about inequality might come to a different conclusion, and that's the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Uh, Now, the administration is pushing, as we sit here today, very hard on Democrats in Congress to go along with the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Republicans, most of them, not all, are going along with it. Most economists, based on kind of Ricardian ideas that go back a very long way, say trade is good. What's the argument that if you were sitting today in the Obama White House, you would provide? Yeah, let me, uh, it'll be very clear after a few minutes. I think these trade agreements are really bad. And these new trade agreements. And I think the uh, issue of the Trade Promotion Authority, which is called Fast Track, is particularly bad because it's basically giving not only Obama a blank check, but the next president, who we don't know, a blank check. And it's a very big blank check. Because I think uh, almost never does an agreement that gets reached get rejected? Well, yeah. even if the next president uh, actually has a blank check, uh, she is going to take that blank check <laughs> uh, and do with it whatever. I mean, that exactly. is, if the Obama, Obama administration is, in, uh, is very much pushing the Trans-Pacific Agreement, then the next president will presumably do the same thing with the next Hopefully agreement. Hopefully not. She so won't. What, <laughs> so what, from a standpoint of economic analysis, you're, head of the, the, you're yeah. head of the Council of Economic Advisors. You are sitting there in the White House. This issue comes up, and what do you say? Okay, so I first begin by pointing out uh, something that Paul Krugman has emphasized. This agreement is not about trade. Actually, I have an essay in this book about that. These new trade agreements are not... You know, one of the things uh, those of you in the policy schools know that whenever you uh, have a bill, you should name the bill the opposite of what it is. <laughs> so if you have a bill that's about managed trade, you call it a free trade bill. So 
This is not about free trade. It's not even about trade. So the most invidious part of the agreement is a, prov- a set of provisions which are designed to undermine the ability to regulate, uh, to regulate the environment, health, uh, every aspect of our society. Uh, when we were in the uh, administration, we had a very big fight over a concept called regulatory takings. The concept of regulatory takings is that when you pass a regulation, uh, you are restraining somebody from doing something they shouldn't do. And usually they want to do that, corporations want to do it, because they make more profits. So restraining them from doing it lowers their profits. And the corporations say, well, if you pass a law restraining us from poisoning you or doing other things, you should compensate us for not killing you. And uh, that's called a regulatory taking. And believe it or not, Obama is taking that view. Well, a similar provision was in NAFTA. Yeah, and we never really understood that. Uh, we were both in the administration at the time. It was never discussed. It as was far never as, discussed. No, How and I that, actually asked the USDR at the time, Mickey Cantor, afterwards, did, you, did he know? Well, somebody must have known. You were, <laughs> you were head of the Council of Economic Advisors. I was Secretary of Labor. We were both at these tables where NAFTA was being discussed, and, and the president was there. And why did nobody raise this, and who put it in? Well, it was put in in the Bush administration, and we inherited no. Oh, we inherited We inherited the bill, and no one sought to renegotiate it. There were negotiations on the environmental labor sidebars, as they were called, but nobody looked at the text, and everybody's busy. You know, I'm not a lawyer. You're, you are a lawyer, but, but, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, uh, if you want to get uh, put to sleep, try to read these trade agreements, and they're written really so that only other trade lawyers can make money out of interpreting them. So they are a, a way of supporting the trade legal profession. But uh, now we know. Now we know about these provisions. Uh, and let me, let me give you, you know, they spread a lot around the world in lots of agreements. Uh, there, there's one provision that has gotten, in one example, but it's typifi- typical of the examples. And I, I think it's, it, it shows how bad things are. Um, uh, Many of you may know about uh, 19th century, there was a trade imbalance between China and the West. China had lots of things that the West wanted, including China, I mean, porcelain. <laughs> and uh, the West had nothing that the China wanted, and there was a big trade imbalance. And those of you who know about macroeconomics, trade balances are not very good. And then the West figured out a way of correcting the trade imbalance, uh, a product that we in the business school at Columbia uh, and all business schools say has really good properties. One of the things when you have a good product, uh, what you want is what are called repeat purchases. And they buy it, they come back. And the product that had this really good characteristic was opium. Um, because once you bought it, you kept, kept, kept coming back. Uh, China figured out that this was not such a good product for the Chinese, for China. And they banned it. And uh, the West said, this is a basic right that we have to send products that kill you. Um, you know, these are human rights that we're talking about now. And uh, they went to war with our support. 
And there were actually not one war, but two wars, opium wars, and that's how the West got the concessions on the east coast of China. Uh, your government, the US, is now waging the new opium war. Now, it's not about opium, but it doesn't take long to figure out where I'm going on this, I hope. A product that has this characteristic of repeat purchases and kills is cigarettes. And uh, governments you know, around the world, encouraged by the WHO, have passed regulations, mild regulations, not forbidding it, but just discouraging people. Labeling, this may be hazard hazardous to your health. Now, in Uruguay and Australia, they took this one step further, and they have pictures of a kind of lungs uh, that uh, you'll look like after you smoke. And it's not a very pretty picture. Um, and guess what? Uh, it actually works. People are discouraged from smoking. Philip Morris is very upset because they say this is taking away our profits because people aren't buying the cigarettes. And Uruguay and Australia say, yes, that's exactly what we intended uh, because we think health is important. We have to pay for the health costs. We have to pay for, the, you know, if you get TB, if you come down with lung cancer, the costs often are pay, faced by the, by, by the public. In the U.S., we sued over that, this, the, these, cigarette, these health care costs. So uh, the, the, Philip Morris is suing Uruguay and Australia for trying to just label cigarettes under trade agreements that are very similar identical, essentially identical yeah. to the TPP and the Transatlantic. And they have this provision that allows companies, global companies, to sue in private courts, in private courts, and tribunals that are outside the legal system of any country. And, and when you think about it, one of the basic functions of government, of the public, is a judicial system. Transparent, precedence, appeal, appeal, all these provisions of a judicial system that we've built up over hundreds of years to, to protect us. And they are trying to undermine that, but it's not an accident because they want to undermine it so the outcomes are pro-corporation. One of the most important aspects of inequality that you know, I, I talk about again in the book is equal access to justice. And we say, justice for all. And what we've really evolved to is a system where we ought to be saying in the Pledge of Allegiance, not justice for all, but justice for all who can afford it. And that's what this is about. These private courts are very expensive. So Uruguay is a poor country. It can't afford to defend itself. So fortunately, some rich Americans... Mayor Bloomberg, Bill Gates, are actually paying for Uruguay's expenses because they happen to believe in health. Obama doesn't seem to. And the real irony of this is the signature uh, uh, agreement, uh, signature achievement of Obama has been Obamacare, health care. One of the intentions was to lower health care costs. But another provision will have the effect of raising the cost of pharmaceuticals because we have a delicate balance between generics and big pharma. And, and it was called the Hatch-Waxman Act. It was done in the 80s. So that today in the United States, 87% of all drugs are generics. It's a balance in the sense that that competition from generics keep the big pharma 
prices from being even higher than they otherwise would be. So it's pulled down our costs. The trade agreement is unbalancing this balance. It's giving more power to big pharma. You asked, you know, we, we, we beat up a little bit on, on the finance sector. Big pharma is another person at the table. The generics are not at the table. But you say, you say big pharma is a person, but corporations are not people. Or maybe they are. The Supreme Court says they are. <laughs> Sorry, they, thanks for uh, that. I, want, I do have just one other question uh, for you directly, Joe. We've talked so far about uh, inordinate political power expressed in a variety of ways. How does this end? What's the future? Can you say something that is uplifting yeah, and positive? I'll, I'll, <laughs> so, so let me say, okay, I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll first begin with something that's uplifting, and then just so you aren't left, left on that high, I'll, I'll try to bring it back around to earth. Thank you. So the uplifting is that there have been moments in our history where we have the kind of inequality that we have today. The end of the 19th century, uh, uh, the Gilded Age, uh, the Roaring Twenties, where uh, the top 1% got essentially the same amount that it's getting uh, before the 2008 crisis. Um, and in both of those instances, we pulled back from the break. Uh, we had the, the Gilded Age was followed by the Progressive Era, bipartisan. You know, it, w- it was Teddy Roosevelt who passed antitrust laws um, and that tried to protect the environment. So, so um, uh, that was one example. The, the uh, Roaring Twenties was fo- followed by this uh, social, you know, the Wagner Act, the, the Social Security, the social legislation of the 30s, the golden age of capitalism in the 50s, 60s, where, where the country grew together. So in both of these instances, we reversed what seemed to be, at the moment, an irreversible trend. So the hopeful note is that uh, we'll do that once again. Now, there are other reasons for this hope. Uh, the fact that this debate about inequality has finally reached the top of the agenda. Even Republicans are talking about it. Um, it wasn't that way four years ago. You know, four years ago, Mitt Romney would almost be proud about the fact that he was paying only 14% of his income in taxes and keeping his money in the Cayman Islands. Well, Hillary uh, Clinton begins her campaign two weeks ago saying that the deck is stacked in favor of those at the top. I don't remember a president beginning a camp political campaign exactly. with anything close like that. to that. So, you know, and, and Mitt Romney said you should only talk about inequality behind closed doors and quiet voices. Uh, so th- we've come a long way in, the, in those four years. I think your movie helped. And I think, you know, the locks of these things uh, helped. And secondly, uh, there is a bigger grassroots movement. And I think political action is really important in this arena. Uh, we, we're seeing the success of that, but it shows you the, the or I don't want to say the dilemma we're in. 70% of Americans believe we ought to increase the minimum wage. The economic evidence that an increase in the minimum wage would not have any significant adverse effect, maybe even a positive, is overwhelming. Uh, David Card here has done some of the best research uh, in, in that area. And Michael Reich as well. Yeah, exactly. That's right. So we, we, we have a lot of evidence. Today, we're different when we debated the question 20 years ago. 
then a lot of the people who were on the minimum wage were, were uh, teenagers and after job in school. Now, disproportionately, it's uh, families who are supporting a whole family, you know, working, supporting a whole family on what amounts to $15,000 a year. You know, that's not possible. Um, so in spite of the fact that 70% of Americans or more support this, we can't get it through Congress. Can you believe that? Yeah, you can't believe it. I can believe it. <laughs> but the good news is that in cities all around the country, I just was in Seattle, you know, they're actually taking action at the local level. Uh, Mayor de Blasio uh, in New York uh, on Wednesday announced a, a commitment to reduce the number of people in poverty by 800,000. And that a key part of that was raising minimum wage, but also housing and environmental policies, a whole set of policies. So it's beginning. Uh, so that's the hopeful note. Uh, Joe Stiglitz, I want to thank you again for joining us. It's been a great show.